Well, I'd like to welcome you to this um, first um, talk of four on uh, the Buddhist uh, psychology of the Abhidhamma. <coughs> what I'd like to do in this tonight is uh, briefly introduce the topic, uh, talk about one part of the Abhidhamma, Take a short break uh, after an hour or so for five minutes stretching. Uh, take questions and engage in dialogue with you about what we what I've been talking about. Maybe talk a little more and then close with a brief uh, guided uh, sitting uh, meditation to kind of give you an experiential taste of what it is. Uh, I've been trying to talk about uh, tonight. The Abhidhamma is a vast uh, amount of material. It's very difficult to know just where to begin or just where to end, what to say and what not to say. And in the four nights uh, that I'll be speaking here, the most I'll be able to do is to give an overview of the scope and the nature of the Abhidhamma and uh, hope that I can stimulate your curiosity and interest a little bit to, one, find out more for yourself through your own study or uh, investigation, and two, to begin to practice in such a way that you discover the whole of the Abhidhamma within yourself anyway. And if these talks do nothing other than to stimulate your curiosity to experientially find out what's being talked about, that's enough. put the Abhidhamma in perspective, the Buddha's teaching um, is contained in the Pali Canon, or the Buddha's direct teaching is contained in a set of books, about 40 volumes, and it's generally composed of three parts. If you can't hear me at any time, please raise your hand and I'll speak a little louder. The first part of the Buddhist teaching is the suttas, or the discourses and discussions that the Buddha had, the talks that the Buddha gave to monks and nuns and lay people, lay men and lay women, uh, to guide them on their path of awakening. And it's a whole series of different people in different situations and different teachings. It's about a third of the Buddhist teaching. The second part of the Buddhist teachings is the compilation of all of the rules that the monks and nuns uh, were to live by, as the situations and the circumstances that prompted the Buddha to make those rules and to create the structure for the uh, life of the community of renunciates. 
the third part of the Buddhist teaching is the Abhidhamma of the, Bo- the Buddhist psychology. And it is a um, comprehensive uh, understanding of the nature of reality or the nature of realities uh, in a very precise uh, language. Uh, it's using common language, but used in a very precise way. And it is all based upon experience. The Buddha's experience and those of us who have, uh, who practice uh, the Buddha's path of awakening uh, can verify, if not all, at least a lot of what's contained in the Abhidhamma, contained in the Buddhist psychology. As a brief overview. As we sit here, or I stand here in this room, we are—we all have an understanding of what's going on here. We understand that there's sitting and room and class and uh, teacher and talk and lights and male and female, and we understand this whole vast uh, description of what's taking place here. And the Buddha, in much of his teaching, talked about men and women in relationship, and monks and nuns in relationship, teachers and students in relationship, and that's one whole description of reality, a very conventional uh, description that we all understand. The Abhidhamma is not, does not use that language. The Abhidhamma uses the language of um, abstract Un, not, it's not unconventional reality, but it's abstract reality. And in the Buddha's description of this reality, he identified, in, from his own experience, four ultimate or abstract realities that are possible to uh, experience or he reduced all of uh, this thing that we call life, all of our experience of being human, to four realities. The first of those is consciousness. Uh, the, the knowing faculty of the mind. The second is the mental factors which that consciousness is the receptacle for mental factors or factors of mind like joy, love, hate, greed, jealousy, envy, uh, faith, confidence, mindfulness, wisdom, understanding. These are all the factors of mind that are contained or are held by consciousness. The third uh, abstract reality is material existence, material experience. We normally uh, usually experience it as the body, but the Buddha went into a very precise description of what this experience of the body and the external world is, and that's the third uh, experiential uh, abstract reality. The fourth is uh, a, a reality unique to Buddhism, or at that time, unique to Buddhism, uh, and the Buddha called it Nibbana. 
our life as a human being, the whole of the Abhidhamma is nothing other than our life as a mind and body in interactive relationship. Why study? Why learn this? Why even expose yourself to this level or this description of reality or the Buddha's description? In the course of growing up, in the course of our uh, being born as a human, being raised in a family, in a culture, in society, and uh, coming into uh, adulthood, we are heavily conditioned. It's as if our mind and bodies are trained and conditioned and molded to be a certain way. And we understand our experience in a certain way. And in the process of that, our uh, relationship to the world, our relationship to our body, our relationship to each other, assumes and takes on very habitual and patterned behaviors. We, by the time we reach this age, we react to life in all of its conditions habitually. In the process of it, we have learned how to shut down, close down, keep away from, and avoid much of what is possible to experience as a human being. We have predictable, habitual patterns of reaction when put in different situations. We react jealously, angrily, uh, with uh, interest, with curiosity, whatever, in the process of which we do not allow, we avoid, we deny, we don't even see or feel the other possibilities. We end up living a life that is very narrow and constricted in what's possible as a human being. In studying the Buddha's description of what is possible, we can begin to get a sense of where in the Buddhist map of the mind we are living. What small little corner of what's possible that we live in. And when we see how much more is possible, we can begin to get curious, maybe have a little confidence that we can actually begin to open to that range of experience currently unavailable to us. And if nothing else, hopefully your curiosity will get peaked a little bit. With the knowledge or with that theoretical understanding, and all that we get here is a theoretical understanding, then one can feel confident that the Buddhist teaching or this understanding of uh, the mind and the body is useful for oneself in this life today. And when we begin to practice, to uh, discover within ourselves a wider range of what's possible as a human body, with our mind, then we can begin to extend our sense of self. We can begin to extend the boundaries 
with which, within which we live. We can open to a wider range of experience. We can free our mind from its self-imposed limitations. And ultimately, freedom is what we're talking about. So, what I want to do over these four talks is to talk generally about these four uh, abstract realities. Tonight I want to talk about consciousness. The second talk will be about the different factors of mind mental, mental states. The third talk will be about materiality or the physical world, the body and the external world. And the fourth talk will be uh, about the understanding of Nibbana and the stream of consciousness, our stream of consciousness and how it can be uh, identified and uh, altered through meditation practices to get a glimpse of and possibly deeply experience that reality of Nibbana. So, tonight, I need one of those papers. This is the answer. (laughs) I'm sorry, I standing in my room. This looked like a big piece of paper. (laughs) Standing in this hall, it looks pretty small. So I know you can't see it, but I'll generally indicate where I am on the chart, what it is we're talking about, and you can fill in the gaps as you like. First, let me say that consciousness is to know. And we can know many things in many different ways. And as we go through this uh, map or this graphic depiction of consciousness, and then you begin to get an idea of the range of what it is possible to know. Broadly speaking, there are four types of consciousness, or four areas, four spheres of experience of consciousness. And the first of these is the sense sphere of consciousness. And these are the consciousness which are experienced through the senses, through the eyes, through the ears, through the nose, tongue, mouth, body, and the mind. In Buddhism, the mind is considered the sixth sense. So seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking are sensory or sense sphere consciousness. We being sentient beings, for the most part, experience these consciousness. Primarily in the sense spheres of existence, we experience sense sphere consciousness. Consciousness is a 
every moment of our existence is consciousness, is a rapid fluxing of the mind and the body and a rapid knowing of things. As we sit here and we are rapidly knowing all that's happening here, the mind is just clicking off in different consciousness, seeing, hearing, understanding, smelling, feeling, happening ran rapidly, not randomly, rapidly. So the first area of consciousness is sense sphere consciousness. However, it is possible, being sentient beings, to, and living in this sense sphere of human existence, to train the mind to access consciousness primarily experienced in other spheres of existence. This is a Buddhist cosmology. Uh, in the Buddhist cosmology, there are 31 planes of existence. Some of them are sense spheres of existence. Some of them are fine material spheres of existence where there's a very uh, strongly or highly developed mind and a very uh, subtle experience of material existence. These, in this section of the chart, numbers 55 through 69, are fine material sphere consciousness. However, they can be developed by human beings who train their mind through meditation. And this is essentially the development of deep uh, states of concentration or absorption in meditative objects, meditative experience, form, fine material or form, sphere, consciousness. The third section or the third area or the third sphere of uh, consciousness or knowing is in the immaterial, the non-material spheres of existence in which there is a highly developed mind and no experience of material reality. So we call it the formless or the immaterial spheres consciousness. We as human beings can through ardent training of the mind, access those consciousness in which there is no experience of material reality, but there is only an experience of mental uh, experience without any sense of body or any of the sensory world as we know it. Sense sphere consciousness, fine material sphere consciousness, immaterial sphere consciousness, consciousness and fourthly, the supramundane consciousness, the consciousness which are beyond mind and body, in which there is no experience of mind and body as we know it. And the essential difference between, um, well, let me just say that each consciousness, as it fluxes in every instant, of our existence takes an object, takes a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, an emotion, a mental state, an experience of the body, physical experience, can take the... These are the sense sphere 
consciousness. The form sphere consciousness take a concept as an object. The idea of love. The mind can become <coughs> deeply absorbed in the concept or the idea of love or the idea of uh, the qualities of the Buddha or the idea of freedom. The mind can become deeply absorbed, concentrated in concept. Formless sphere consciousness, the mind also takes an object, uh, of a conceptual object, or a state of consciousness as an object. In the, in, in the supramundane consciousness, the mind takes as its object nibbana. And the, essentially, the supramundane consciousness are the various uh, stages of enlightenment as understood in, in, in the Buddhist teaching. So the difference is sense objects, conceptual objects, conceptual objects and consciousness, and nibbana as an object distinguishes these different spheres of consciousness experience. I want to talk mostly about sense-sphere consciousness because it's where we live. It's where we spend our time, for the most part, is with sensory experience. And initially, or the, the first contact we have with sensory experience is through our ideas, nose, tongue, body. And the <coughs> the basic contact of the body with the external world is through the senses, where a sense object, sight or sound or smell, comes in contact with the appropriate sense base, the eye and a visible object, the ear and a sound, the nose and a smell, the body and touch, tongue and taste, the mind and body. Come in contact and the mind perceives uh, through the senses. So the initial types of consciousness in any process is Seeing consciousness or eye consciousness, numbers 13 and 14, ear consciousness, 15 and 16, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and then the mind, numbers. Can you follow this chart? Do you know where I'm pointing and what I'm talking about? Can you fill in your chart at all? No. I do not. Okay. So B is sense sphere consciousness, V is form sphere consciousness, W is immaterial sphere consciousness, X is supramundane consciousness. Within the sense sphere consciousness, there are three broad divisions. There are the wholesome or the skillful uh, the wholesome, the skillful, the beneficial and beautiful consciousness that arise in R. The R block is the beautiful, wholesome, uh, wonderful, uh, pleasant,
states of mind that we experience. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Okay. We know these states of mind when we feel love, when we feel generous, when we feel safe, when we feel uh, compassion, when we are practicing meditation, when we're uh, enjoying the sunset. These can be uh, when we when we're aware and alert feel creative, these are the wholesome, beneficial, beautiful states of mind, consciousness. There are the opposites. Those states of mind in which we are uh, contracted, uh, fearful, uh, unhappy, uh, feeling shamed, uh, embarrassed, identified, strongly identified with ourselves, judging ourselves in some way. These, no, excuse me. <laughs> the C block of consciousness, here we go. The C block of consciousness is the unwholesome, the uh, unskillful states of mind. Those states of mind in which we are strongly identified with a, ourself, very strongly identified with ourselves separate from others, uh, judging ourselves, judging others, comparing ourselves to others, uh, in which we have a strong identification and a very limited uh, sense of who we are. G, the G block of uh, consciousness, are consciousness which are the result of either wholesome or unwholesome states of conscious, consciousness. We know from some understanding, either through books or through uh, our own experience, we have some understanding of the law of karma. The law of karma states that, you know, for actions have results. Thoughtful actions, physical actions, verbal actions have results. And those results are come about at some point when conditions are ripe, we experience those results. The G consciousness are those resultant consciousness. Did you get some examples? Yes. Seeing consciousness, what we see is a result, not, not the object that we see, but the fact that we see is a result of past action. If we see pleasant sight, it is a result of a previous wholesome, skillful action. If we see unpleasant sights, pleasant sights are 13th consciousness. Unpleasant sights, 14th consciousness. They are the result of previous karmic actions. Same with sights, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant smells. Result of wholesome, skillful actions at some point in the past. Unpleasant sights, unpleasant sounds, unpleasant tastes, smells, etc. Result of unwholesome, unskillful, 
contracted states of mind uh, or comic action. The very fact that we have a body, that we have a human body mind to experience the sensory world is a result of past actions. And in spite of how difficult we might think it is and how mm, uh, problematic it sometimes is to live, in a, live with a human body on this plane of existence, we have to understand that it is the result of immense, tremendous amounts of very skillful and wholesome action that we get reborn as a human being. There are other planes of existence that are uh, less fortunate to be living in. So, the G consciousness are resultant consciousness that do not have any quality of being wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful in and of themselves. They are the result of those wholesome or unwholesome prior consciousness. However, unwholesome consciousness, the C consciousness, are, do have roots. They, have, they are rooted in delusion, attachment, and aversion. So that the D consciousness are those consciousness which are rooted in attachment. And we know this when we find ourselves wanting, um, strongly wanting, strongly desiring something, very attached to, very identified with ourself, not having, and wanting, reaching to get and to grasp something outside of ourselves. Strong identification with this me and that thing or person or whatever. And so the flavor of the mind is one of attachment. The color of the mind is one of reaching, grasping, uh, clinging, hanging on to, wanting that other thing, that other sensory object. Those consciousness are rooted in delusion and attachment. I say they're rooted in delusion because Unwholesome consciousness are basically rooted in not seeing or experiencing or understanding reality accurately. And because we don't see it and understand it and experience it accurately, we then get attached. We get clinging. We get wanting something. And it works this way. Because we don't uh, see clearly the nature of uh, another person, say, we believe, we see someone and we, we feel some uh, affection or attraction to them. And it doesn't have to be a person, it can be ice cream, or it can be a new cop, it can be anything, whatever your attachment is, and uh, whatever your attachments are. Uh, <laughs> and the, the basic confusion, or the basic delusion is that we believe that that thing that that person, that ice cream, that car, that new job, that dinner, that date, that whatever it is, is going to make us happy. It's going to give us or bring us some sense of completion, wholeness, 
contentment, ease, happiness in our life. Because we think it's going to be there for us forever. We don't see that it's not going to be there forever. We don't see that attachment in and of itself is, or clinging in and of itself is unpleasant. But we believe it to be. We don't see clearly the nature of that object, and so we attach. Sometimes we, the, rather than attach to and want to experience or want to get and have some uh, object, we're very averse to. We don't want some experience. We don't want to feel that emotion. We don't want to see that person. We don't want to have that uh, sound. We don't want to smell that smell. And so the e-consciousness are those consciousness rooted in aversion. But to be averse to something, we also have to not see it clearly. We have to believe that it's going to make us unhappy, that it's going to be uh, harmful to us, not seeing it clearly. So they, those consciousness rooted in attachment and aversion also are rooted in delusion, not seeing clearly. There are consciousness, primarily extreme restlessness or anxiety, and the skeptically doubting mind, the mind that can never resolve and act decisively, that are rooted in delusion only, the F uh, box of consciousness, are those consciousness which are rooted in delusion, without attachment or without aversion, but still with delusion. There are distinctions between the different consciousness rooted in attachment, the different consciousness rooted in aversion and delusion. Don't have time to go into them in detail, but just to know that there are these three broad categories of unwholesome karmic actions, unwholesome karmic thoughts rooted in attachment, aversion, and delusion. The way it works, or the way it seems to happen in the stream of consciousness, is that when we see something through the 13th, the 14th uh, consciousness, we see something, the mind initially perceives that sensory object. And then it takes it into the mind and it considers what that object is and begins to cognize it, begin to recognize what that object is. And only after we have perceived it, cognized it, and recognized what it is, then we are able to react to it, or we have a uh, affected relationship to it. We like it, we don't like it, we are afraid of it, we are overjoyed by it. We have some emotional reaction after the perception and cognition. Then we have an affected relationship. These result in consciousness are the perceptual and cognitive consciousness. The unwholesome, and the wholesome that I'll speak about later, but the unwholesome consciousness is our emotional reaction to, or our, we can say our effective relationship to that experience. So when we see someone that we're very attracted to, we get attached. When we see someone, you know, politician, we have a version. And when we see whatever else, then we just get very restless. But that's our emotional or our 
affective relationship. These are primarily affective states of mind. So, in the sense sphere, we have uh, resultant consciousness that are results of previous karmas, and we have current karmas, or karmic actions, the unwholesome ones rooted in attachment, aversion, and delusion. We have wholesome, or skillful, uh, beautiful states of mind. This is uh, box act. Consciousness number 31 through 54 are those uh, states of mind in which we are feeling loving, generous, we have some understanding, some wisdom, where there's compassion, uh, confidence, where there's some degree of equanimity, uh, openness of mind, in which there is not this solid identification with myself in which there's some sense of openness and permeability and some sort of connectedness with the world, not this division of the world where I'm here and I want that or I don't want that, but there's a sense of being connected to uh, the world in which there is not that strong identification with I being separate from the world. So the wholesome consciousness in R, or the beautiful uh, consciousness of the sense sphere, are in R. We know from the law of karma that there are these skillful, wholesome uh, actions uh, whether it's being generous or loving or training the mind in meditation that uh, we perform and that will produce results. The difference between S, T, and U within the R box is that the S's are the wholesome karmic actions. The T's are the results of those actions and the U's are those same actions when performed without a karmic result, when someone is so freed their mind that they no longer create karma, but they still have wholesome states of mind, then they are merely functional states of mind, functional consciousness, not creating karma, and they're not the result of previous karma, but they are merely functional in that stream of consciousness of that being. So, we have the S consciousness, which are the wholesome states of mind that are primarily developed with, uh, through meditation, through uh, very considerate and conscious living, not only through meditation, but whenever one develops a sense of themselves in connection to or connected with uh, the rest of the world, with other beings, with uh, the life in which we live. Briefly, and I know it's very quick and it's not much detail, that those are the types of consciousness we primarily experience in the sense sphere. Because they take sense objects as their uh, focus for the mind, as the object of the mind. 
we have relationships of attachment, aversion, confusion, generosity, love, compassion, understanding. In relationship to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. Sense, sphere, consciousness. Now, it is possible through training of the mind to Train the mind to stay focused uh, instead of just picking up the whole range of sensory experience that's available to us, to stay really focused on a very narrow range and to focus the mind on concept, like the idea of love or the idea of compassion, the feeling of love. I shouldn't say just the idea, but it's the uh, feeling of love that we have in our mind or the feeling of compassion, or the feeling of joy, or the feeling of uh, freedom, or whatever, we, whatever, there are a great variety of concepts one can use, including color. Color, sound, mantras, for example. Mantra is the repetition in the mind of a sound. And even though the sound isn't actually outside of us impinging on the ear, it becomes a, uh, a concept. That sound becomes a concept in the mind. The color blue or red or white, as we focus on it with our eyes closed or initially with the eyes open, it's a sensory uh, consciousness. And when the, when the eyes are closed and the mind creates that color, it becomes a concept, not a direct experience for that color. The mind can become deeply absorbed, deeply concentrated uh, on that concept. And the way it happens is that the mind is uh, directed, repeatedly directed, to connect with that concept, to connect with that feeling of love, to connect with that feeling or that color or that sound. Let me just talk about, uh, we'll use the loving-kindness meditations in, the, in this description of these fine material sphere consciousness. When one develops or when one practices loving-kindness, uh, meditation. Uh, they take as their object someone who's very lovable, uh, preferably not someone who they're attracted to in a sensory or sexual or romantic way, but someone who they really epitomizes those qualities of human being that one can really love. Dalai Lama is a great example of someone that you can really love. Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, many others. I, those are the most popular or the most common, I think. And, uh, but there are many others, Mother Teresa and, and your own parents. And so we take that object, that person, and we repeatedly connect the mind to that feeling of love in relationship to that person. And as we connect the mind repeatedly, we begin to be able to sustain the mind on it, we sustain the image of that person or that feeling. We connect the mind, we sustain the mind, and when the mind becomes really focused on one idea, the rest of the world recedes into the background and the, the mind becomes very light, very bright, very joyful. There's tremendous interest in the mind to be with that experience. Now remember, I said connect and sustain the mind produces great interest or joy. When that joy uh, initially arises, it brings 
great exhilaration to the body, to the mind. Great lightness of mind, great brightness of mind. And uh, the hair can stand on end and the body can move and the eyes can flicker and you can uh, nearly lose consciousness. It's such an ecstatic state of mind. Great ecstasy. And so, in fact, there are some religions and some practices in which that's the whole aim of that practice, to lose consciousness in ecstatic joy. And it's possible. Connecting the mind, sustaining the mind, joy in the mind. When the joy becomes uh, aroused and then cooled, so to speak, the body and the mind enter a state of great comfort, great softness, great uh, a sense of everything is okay. Great tranquility of mind, tremendous tranquility and peace of mind, where neither the mind nor the body are stirring bit. So absorbed in that uh, feeling of love, that color, or whatever it is, the feeling of love. The mind is so at peace, so at one with, that there's no distraction in the mind whatsoever. Connecting, sustaining, joy, comfort. When that comfort reaches its epitome, or reaches its peak, and the mind is still alert, the mind enters a state of uh, balance or equanimity or one-pointedness, which is uh, where the mind is immovable and the mind does not move or waver a bit from the object of your meditation. Now, what I've just talked about are what I call the five jhanic factors. They are the five factors of mind. Uh, that produce these ecstatic, concentrated states, or these ecstatic consciousness. And these are the uh, consciousness number 55 through 59 are the five jhanas, or the five uh, stages, or the five levels of ecstatic concentration. Number 55 is the first jhana, number 56 is the second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, fifth jhana. These are different absorptions of the mind, different uh, degrees of concentration, stillness, tranquility of the mind. The first jhana, or the 55th uh, consciousness in this uh, chart, is the, the first jhana is, is comprised of, or contains, those five factors of mind. Connecting of the mind, sustaining of the mind, joy in the mind, comfort, and one-pointedness. When one becomes really good at that first jhana, where the mind can access that degree of concentration, stay with that uh, experience of tranquility and love, then it no longer becomes necessary for the mind to keep connecting with it. It just stays there anyway. And so that factor of mind drops away. It's no longer necessary to arouse that energy to connect. And so the second jhana, 56 consciousness, is a state of mind in which connecting of the mind is no longer present. However, sustaining joy, comfort, and one-pointedness still out. The third jhana, or 57th 
consciousness is when even that becomes, the second jhana becomes very easy, very smooth, very focused mind, and it's no longer necessary to even sustain the mind on the meditation object. It just stays there by itself. Then, just joy, comfort, and one-pointedness are present. Three jhanic factors. You say it's no longer necessary to sustain Right. It's like the mind's momentum is there. The momentum of the mind to stay with that object or to connect with the object or to stay with the object is present. And it's no longer necessary to arouse that connection and sustain. And in the first jhana, even though it is a, a state of extreme tranquility and calmness and absorption compared to our everyday state of mind, when one attains to second jhana, can look back at the first jhana and say, boy, that was a really agitated state of mind. <laughs> you say, boy, all that connecting, all that effort in connecting with that object, or that person, or that feeling over and over, really stirred up the mind. And when you get to third jhana, and you look back at second jhana and say, whoa, that was really an agitated state of mind. All that sustaining of my attention on that person really kept me agitated. But now we're into joy. And joy is very ecstatic and uh, exhilarating and uh, we say, boy, this is it. I really got something going here. And if we keep practicing, keep directing the mind to that meditation object, even that joy falls away in whatever jhana that is. Yes. Number 58, fourth jhana, consciousness with comfort and one-pointedness. And at this point, we say, boy, I'm glad to get away from that joy. That was too rough on my mind. <laughs> But that's not the end. We got another one to go. Fifth jhana. We keep practicing our meditation. However, here we can no longer practice loving kindness. Because loving kindness is developing a relationship to someone, some being, or some group of beings in which there is a partiality in the mind. You want that person to be happy. You want those beings to be happy. You want that dog, that cat, that being, that heavenly being, whoever it is, to be happy. That's not an equanimous mind. That's not a mind in balance. That's a lopsided mind. And the fifth jhana is the state of equanimity. And one can no longer practice loving kindness to attain that. One has to practice equanimity meditation, where one takes in a, uh, has the understanding uh, that people's experience is the result of their karma. And we can do what we can to alleviate conditions of unhappiness and difficulty in people's lives. And then we have to basically accept things the way they are. Allows the mind to enter a state of tranquility and absorption and uh, concentration that is that makes comfort look uh, like restlessness. Fifth jhana, high, high state of absorption, concentration, tranquility, seclusion from sensory experience, long gone. Sensory experience is really subtle at this point, where the mind and the body are, the mind is very strong, very tranquil, very uh, cooled out, and the body is very, very subtle. No joy to speak of, no comfort to speak of, beyond joy and comfort. Again, the S consciousness, 55 through 59, are the wholesome, karmic jhanas. The 
he consciousness as a result, resultant consciousness of those wholesome. And when those jhanas are experienced by beings who no longer create karma because they have freed their mind and uprooted all potential sources of uh, confusion and, and defilement in the mind, they are merely functional. So the new consciousness are the functional jhanas of the fine material sphere, able to be experienced and accessed by humans who train their minds, who develop jhanas. That fifth jhana, that state of extreme tranquility, extreme absorption and uh, coolness of mind, stillness of mind and body, is the foundation or the basis or the prerequisite for accessing the formless sphere consciousness. Those consciousness 70 through 81. All of the formless sphere consciousness are developed or based on uh, result, take off from the fifth jhana consciousness of equanimity. Now, the description of those The first, or the uh, number seven, 70th consciousness, again let me just say that the S uh, consciousness are the wholesome karma of developing those formless jhanas. The T consciousness are the result of those wholesome karmic consciousness. And the U is when uh, beings who no longer create karma experience those uh, consciousness functionally. So the first, the first formless sphere consciousness is an absorption in the concept of infinite space, where the mind takes as its object the concept of infinite space and the mind becomes absorbed in that. So you can see, we're not talking about sights and sounds. We're talking about an idea of the infinity of space. And however the mind can hold that, and when the mind becomes completely absorbed in that concept without wavering to any other experience, then one might be able to access that 70th uh, consciousness. When one is able to access that degree of concentration, that degree of absorption of uh, tranquility of mind, there is an experience. There's this consciousness of infinite space. If one then takes that consciousness as the object, one can attain the 71st consciousness, which is absorption in the concept or the uh, experience of infinite consciousness, whatever that means. This is the description of it. Anyway. So the 71st is the wholesome genetic consciousness dwelling on the infinity of consciousness. Now, 
That has got to be some very, very subtle experience. Certainly no material experience. There's no color there. There's no sound there. There's no, no body experiencing that. It's the mind only absorbed in the infinity of consciousness. Now, one then takes that experience and says, hey, there's not much happening here. Why don't I just get absorbed in nothingness? And whatever nothingness is, the mind then gets absorbed in it, can somehow get absorbed in the concept of nothingness. Then, consciousness is the wholesome jhana consciousness dwelling on nothingness. Now that's not space. That's not emptiness. That's not the infinity of consciousness. That's nothingness that the mind gets absorbed in. So that the mind is knowing nothing else. It's not the same thing as emptiness. It's not the same as emptiness. And uh, after we've all experienced it, we can talk about it more, more, <laughs> more detail. <laughs> I want to get through this last, the last form of sphere, and then can take questions. <coughs> now, now that we've all perfectly developed this ability to get absorbed in the nothingness, then we have some experience of that. And then we say, maybe we can get absorbed in that. And it is indeed possible to uh, reach a deeper degree of absorption and tranquility and concentration in the mind into a uh, state uh, in which there is neither perception nor non-perception. Perception being, uh, uh, generally, we can say, perception being the ability to recognize something. And if we perceive something and recognize it, person, sight, sound, color, taste, you know, we can, we can perceive and recognize emptiness. We can perceive and recognize nothingness. We can perceive and recognize infinity of space, infinity of consciousness. And then, there's this other state, this other consciousness, in which the mind is so tranquil and the experience is so subtle, in which there's no perception, or the sense of neither perception nor non-perception. How do we experience that? My sense, and uh, this is my own description of what this is like, is that at the time of accessing that consciousness, one is uh, not perceiving anything. There is no sense, there's no perception, but the sense is that there's no perception. Now, however, when one comes out of that experience, when that state of consciousness no longer exists, there is the ability to say, I was perceiving something then. Neither perception at the time, nor non-perception in hindsight. That's how I understand it. If anybody here has developed that ability, please, no, we can talk about it. <laughs> But that's my sense of what the neither perception and non-perception is, uh, how that's experienced. And again, the uh, S's are the wholesome karmic development of those absorption, and the T's are the resultant of those consciousness when they are experienced as a result, and the U is the consciousness, uh, that consciousness, when it's experienced by uh, fully enlightened beings who no longer create karma.
I've been talking for an hour. And there's a few more consciousness to go. Won't take long. The other stages of enlightenment. Uh, but why don't we take about five minutes? No more than five minutes. Stand up, stretch, get a drink if you got to, go to the toilet if you got to, and five minutes. Play about the last, uh, the last few consciousness that I haven't spoken about. Then uh, we'll have opportunity for questions, uh, if there are any. And uh, then we can, uh, I'll try to lead a guided meditation in which we evoke each and every one. <laughs> well, maybe some. <laughs> if not everyone, some. <laughs> so. So this last area of uh, consciousness from uh, uh, number 82 through 121. These are the states of mind or the consciousness which go beyond mind and body, that take as their object uh, Nibbana. Nibbana is one of those, uh, uh, this understanding that the Buddha has of some experience and some uh, something that cannot be described. It has no taste, it has no shape, it has no color, it has no sound, it doesn't have any concept, it doesn't have anything where there is no way to describe it. But the mind can take it as an object and there is uh, that consciousness which takes that indescribable thing of Nibbana as its object. It is such a profound or powerful experience, such a degree of absorption and such a contact with a reality that we do not usually or normally experience that it has profound consequences for any being that uh, happens to access one of these uh, consciousness. And <clears throat> in, this, in this description, or this, this tradition's uh, description of the stages of enlightenment, there are certain tendencies of mind which are uprooted, which um, no longer are able to arise in the mind which has experienced one of these consciousness. Now let me just describe a little more. The, again, there are the wholesome karmic uh, actions of those consciousness, uh, 82 through 101. And they are the first stage of uh, enlightenment, second stage of enlightenment, third stage of enlightenment, fourth stage of enlightenment. There are five first stage, five second stage, five third stage. Those five are merely accessing that consciousness through first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, or fifth jhana. So it's the fifth, it's the first jhana consciousness of the path. Uh, first stage of enlightenment, first jhana. First stage of enlightenment, second jhana, first stage. And someone or a being can only experience the first stage of enlightenment, that moment of consciousness, only once. 
it's not possible to experience it twice. So whatever level of jhana you have attained is the jhana that you will access that stage of enlightenment or that first path consciousness um, from. And it's said that when one attains, when one is able to access that first stage of enlightenment, that one totally uproots or permanently uproots from their mind, from that stream of consciousness, the potential for the arising of a belief in a permanent self. That that belief can no longer arise in that being, in this existence or in any subsequent existence. So the belief in a permanent self, that sense of division and separation, is uprooted. Also uprooted is skeptical doubt, or one of these consciousness in delusion, uh, one of these consciousness rooted in delusion, where one no longer misunderstands or no longer has doubt about the uh, possibility, the efficacy, and the path for liberation or towards or of liberation where one has so clearly seen their mind and seen the nature of uh, this human, uh, or not only human, but the nature of the interactions of mind and body, that one has seen the way to free the mind from its conditioning. will no longer have any doubt about the possibility that it is possible to free the mind, uh, attain Buddhahood, so to speak, and one understands the nature of the truth, the Dhamma, and one knows uh, that there are beings who have attained that state of liberation. So there is no longer any doubt in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Also, because one has probably had to work rather diligently to get there, or to attain, or to access that consciousness, one no longer uh, subscribes to uh, spiritual practices which don't lead to freedom of mind. One knows the difference between effective and ineffective uh, practices. No longer belief in rites and rituals and uh, whatever. And that's not, I don't mean to say that all ritual is ineffective practice, but one does not take that practice to be the practice for liberation of mind. Those are the uh, qualities of those unwholesome tendencies of mind which are uprooted with the first, with the attainment or access to that first stage of enlightenment. Second stage of enlightenment does not uproot any tendencies, it does not uproot anything uh, permanently, but it severely weakens uh, these consciousness rooted in aversion and sense uh, consciousness rooted in attachment that have sensory uh, experience or sensory objects. They're weakened. And only when one attains the third stage or the third path of, to enlightenment or to liberation does one totally uproot. Uh, these consciousness rooted in aversion no longer arise in that being stream of consciousness. And attachments, uh, sensory attachments, also no longer arise in a being who's accessed third path of liberation. Fourth path of liberation or the 
fourth stage of enlightenment, consciousness 71 through 101. Uh, one totally uproots from the mind. Restlessness, this uh, consciousness rooted in delusion, number 12, totally uproots that, totally uproots all of the uh, remaining consciousness rooted in attachment, uh, uproots uh, restlessness, uh, attachment to these jhanas, uh, uproots ignorance, and a few others. I'm not sure what can be Yeah. Attachment to form jhanas, attachment to formless jhanas, restlessness, ignorance, and <coughs> I remember. But even though one can only access the path to enlightenment once, one can develop the ability to access uh, that state again. And it's developing, it's through developing uh, the fruition consciousness. Uh, all consciousness have their resultants or their fruitions. So too with enlightenment, they have their resultants experienced immediately after the uh, uh, enlightenment itself, but one can develop the ability to access it at will for extended periods of time. You know, instead of just a moment, one can develop the ability to access <clears throat> the consciousness uh, that takes Nibbana as an object for five minutes or ten minutes or an hour or two or a day or however, not however long, but up to considerable lengths of time in which one is absorbed in Nibbana, or takes, absorbed in a, constant, uh, a consciousness which takes Nibbana as an object. And it's, it's, it's done through training the mind and through uh, using the power of determination in the mind, doing aditanas and, and setting the course of the mind uh, irrevo irrevocably in a direction until one attains it can be done. So, briefly, as time goes by, that's the Buddhist, the Buddha's map of the mind. Now, one can say, hey, what about uh, embarrassment? Uh, where's that on here? And what about uh, beauty? Where's that on here? And what about this and what about that? Well, this is a quick sketch, and like any map, not everything that uh, exists is on the map. But what's on the map is enough to guide you where you need to go. The Buddha once was walking through the forest with the monks and nuns and, and other people who were doing his practice, and he reached down and he picked up a handful of leaves from the floor of the forest, and he said, which is more, the number of leaves in my hand or the number of leaves in this forest? And they said, well, of course, the number of leaves in the forest more than number of leaves in hand. And he says, yes, this is true. He says, what I know is like the leaves in the forest. What I have told you is like the leaves in my hand. But that's all you need to know. So, what that tells me is, be careful what you spend your time learning. Some of it's useful for liberation, some of it isn't. The Buddha taught what was necessary, or what was useful for liberating the mind. And there is a way to read the map and to discover uh, all of your experience on this map. 
there it's it's abbreviated and there's a lot more to it that we'll get into next week uh, uh, Thursday there'll be another section of this mine another section of the map of the mine and uh, we'll see more of the details but I'd like to uh, take questions if you have any and uh, or uh, if not questions and you want to just to make a comment, then that's fine too. I've talked for an hour or something, and it's your turn now. Please. Thank you. During in the state of the mind, you only have access to the stages of enlightenment but once. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I didn't quite understand that. Uh, it is said that the path consciousness, path consciousness is that stage of enlightenment, huh? can only be accessed once. Once one has attained to that path, or has, that, has attained to that stage of enlightenment, one can then access Nibbana with that understanding, with that degree of wisdom, but it's no longer path consciousness. It's no longer that stage of enlightenment. It is the fruition of that stage of enlightenment. So the path consciousness is one, and the fruition consciousness can be developed for a great length of time, any number of consciousness. Remember, in the snap of a finger, there are billions of these passing by. Billions. Billions, billions, two billions, three billions. <coughs> so there's a lot. One of them in that can be first stage of enlightenment. Now, that's going to be pretty quick. Right? Now, if there's a billion things going by like that, and only one of them takes Nibbana as an object, that's pretty quick. You're going to have to be really sharp to catch it. However, if you don't catch it and you keep practicing, maybe you'll develop your fruition to where, you know, you run together a few billion fruition consciousness at a time, and then you begin to see, hey, there's something going on. So you might miss that stage, that path consciousness, but you might catch it when it comes around again. You know, fruition. Yeah, please. Two questions. Where does the experience of Mantra becomes a concept in the mind. Is it merely a concept, or is it more about vibrational? Concept? Right, right. Uh, the first one was, where is, where is emptiness? I would have to ask you to describe that state of mind and body that you call emptiness. And when you do, I can then locate it. Emptiness is a concept. It's a word. You know, and you have some you have some experience or some understanding of it. Huh? I have some experience or understanding of it, but we may be different. Huh? So if you describe it in as, as much detail as you can, I'll try to locate it again. You see? I'm wondering if it's not a technical term or concept that fits somewhere specifically on Right. One, one might say that uh, nothingness is emptiness. One might say that uh, emptiness is uh, uh, when, when one feels great peace, where one feels no strong identification with their body or their mind, one's quite empty. One can feel quite empty. There can be a physical feeling of emptiness. You know, for those of you who have meditated, sometimes you feel like the body is vast space. Sometimes you feel like you can feel the edge of the body, you can feel the contour of the body, and nothing inside emptiness. Sometimes you can feel like no body, vast space, emptiness. 
many different ways of understanding the experience, and we can put the word emptiness on a variety of experiences. So I can't say that emptiness is here, or there, or there. I need to hear a more accurate description, a more uh, detailed description of emptiness. Yeah. Mantra. When one practices mantra, or when one takes a, uh, the feeling of love, or when one takes a color, initially there is some uh, sensory contact. You know, we, 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 you know, we take the sound, om or whatever you want to take. Huh? And we, we play it in our mind ear. Huh? And eventually it gets uh, to be, it's not actually striking, it's not a sound striking the ear base. But in the mind, the mind has a memory of that sound. And it plays it over and over and over. When I say it becomes a concept, it, it, it's a not, it's, it's mental. It's a mentally constructed thing. It's not sound waves like you hear them. The same with the color uh, uh, blue. Huh? The way you do a blue casino meditation is you take a, a disc of blue, you look at it, you get absorbed in, with your eyes open, you get absorbed in blue, and at some point, you're able to close your eyes and still see it. When you're not really seeing it with your eyes, you're seeing it with your mind. At that point, it becomes a mental image. It's what's called, it's what's called a nimitta. It's a mental image of that blue. It's a nimitta of a sound, it's a nimitta of a sight, a nimitta of a feeling of love, a nimitta of when one practices anapanasati. Anapanasati is watching the breath at the tip of the nostrils. And it can be used, that meditation practice can be used for development of just concentration or for the development of insight. And if you, as you're observing the breath at the nostrils, if you are feeling the sensations of tingling and heat and vibration and whatnot, you're practicing insight. If you're knowing in, out, in, out, and not really feeling sensation, you're practicing tranquility. And that way, it can become a nimitta. The, the breath at the nostrils can become a mental image that one knows mentally in-breath, out-breath, but one is not actually feeling sensation. Practicing concentration, tranquility, not insight. Yeah. Is absorption, is that the state of mind? Is that a result of insight meditation or tranquility? Right. Absorption, let me just say that uh, in these, these forms of your consciousness, the jhanas, the jhanas are tranquility meditation. Hmm? I talked about these five jhana factors. Connecting of the mind to the object, the meditation object, sustaining of the mind to the meditation object, the joy or interest, the comfort, the sukha, the comfort, and the one-pointedness. Now those factors of mind can be developed with a meditation object and develop tranquility. Or those factors of mind can be developed when the object is a vipassana or an insight meditation object. One does not attain jhanas practicing insight because there is not that level of absorption. But those five factors of mind get developed equivalently. So that when one is practicing insight and those five factors of mind get developed to the equivalent of first jhana, we can say that one has entered first the passionate jhana. It's an absorption in the observing the flexing nature of the mind and body, and the, the, um, the noticing the arising and passing away of uh, innumerable phenomena. But it's not an absorption in a single mental nimitta, a single mental object. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
But it's absorption in the knowing of the arising and passing away of uh, mental and physical phenomena, actual mental and physical phenomena. So we can say absorption, yes, but it's not the same type of absorption as tranquility. Yes. So is that something that's the graphic of it? Yes. Is that something that you developed or is that something that's completely down somewhere? This is my own. Say that again? This, this uh, talk is being taped, and the Damacy Tape Library in Massachusetts is going to distribute, make these, this series of talks available as a series, and if you buy the series of talks, you get all four of them. <laughs> However, that's really an awful thing to do. You know, I feel very, uh, maybe I'll change my mind. <laughs> hard to know exactly. Uh, I cannot say exactly what that gap is. I can give you some uh, clues and some, some idea of what it might be. Okay? So we're practicing meditation and we can pay attention. We watch the breath, in breath, out breath, rising, falling. We watch some thoughts go by, this, 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 this. And then, and then pretty soon we say, hey, nothing just happened. <laughs> right? 99% of the time, we were asleep. <laughs> One-tenth of 1% one of the time, we might have been deeply absorbed and concentrated, uh, loss of consciousness through concentration. Uh, it is possible to lose concentration any number of ways. Uh, it is possible to lose uh, consciousness uh, any number of ways. Mindfulness itself, that, 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 that knowing itself, can falter for a moment. Even in the midst of great momentum of mindfulness, the mind is, and there is a sense of gap. Mind can be lose consciousness due to absorption, concentration, ecstatic concentration. Uh, can lose consciousness due to pain. Can lose consciousness due to sleep. Uh, and there's a couple more ways of losing consciousness uh, or having a sense of gap. And there's also Accessing the body. Yeah. Take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> so it it requires uh, extreme diligence to know the difference between a loss of consciousness 
due to space out, due to uh, over concentration, and due to sleepiness, due to faltering of mindfulness, uh, due to, uh, in fact, uh, great equanimity can uh, lead to loss of consciousness and nibbana. So it takes it takes really diligent mind to know the difference. And uh, I encourage you in your practice to look and know for yourself, because nobody can tell you. No one, no one can tell you what that gap is. Nobody. Only you can discover for yourself what those gaps are. Yeah. But it's good. Good, good practice if you're beginning to notice gaps. Good. And in the in the uh, fourth talk, when I start talking about nibbana or the stream of consciousness, uh, then we'll begin to see how these things play out in a stream from moment of birth to death, and birth to death, and on and on and on and on, through uh, these states of great confusion, delusion, through states of mindfulness and meditation, through the stages of enlightenment and accessing things that uh, I just really. Wonderful. Yeah, please. Is there a distinction between emotion as a content of consciousness or thoughts? It seems like some of these are emotionally, and then most Western schools, emotions are considered something different. Yeah. It's just a state. Yeah, I'm, I'm using the word emotion to make it a little more accessible to we Westerners who have Western psychological understanding. But in fact, uh, in, in, in uh, the Buddhist uh, map, we don't really talk about emotions, we talk about consciousness which are rooted in. Attachment, aversion, delusion, or rooted in uh, confidence, mindfulness, wisdom, love, etc. And uh, our experience, our very mundane human experience of these consciousness is often emotional. Huh? Great anger, disappointment, frustration, uh, joy, love, compassion, uh, generosity, confidence, uh, low self-esteem, sense of shame, etc. These are emotional experiences. And uh, they're all here. They're rooted here, of course. It's the roots of those consciousness. We talk about them as emotions, but we can we can locate them here. Yeah. yeah. Where which one's X? I don't have my map. To get to Nibbana, do you have to go through Nibbana? I mean, do you have to get to Nibbana, do you have to go through Janus? Yeah. No. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me say, let me just say that uh, for, the most, for the most part, until we begin waking up a little bit, we spend our life up here. We, of course, we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. These are the results of, this is just the, the nature of having a mind and body. Uh, these are result of consciousness and our affective our affective relationship to it is usually rooted in attachment or aversion or confusion. Just general, not knowing what the heck's going on. <laughs> and uh, considering life a whole series of blessings and curses. You know, blessings if we get attached, curses if we feel aversion. <laughs> That's where we spend our life, just hanging out. <laughs> and then we begin practice. Then we begin to get a, a sense of a little, uh, little subtlety in our life, a little joy, a little wakefulness, a little self-consciousness. And we begin to feel you know, some confidence, some mindfulness, some equanimity, some balance, some love, some tranquility. And, and these are these 
state of the consciousness. Now, when we start practicing insight meditation, insight meditation, this is what we're developing. Great strength of mind of these wholesome, sensuous, uh, sense-sphere consciousness. Developing generosity, developing love, developing understanding. In these consciousness, karma, or the intention, the volition in the mind, the motivation, is predominant. It's highly developed. And when one has progressed through different stages of understanding, one can attain to insight into the unconditioned nibbana, the unconditioned. The, the, it has no conditions for creation of nibbana. There's something you have to without going through jhanas. The Buddha taught uh, that one can practice insight and attain enlightenment, or one can practice the jhanas to then attain enlightenment. But it is not necessary to practice the forms, the, the, the jhanas, either the form or the formless to get to nibbana. However, to get to the formless jhanas, you must practice the form sphere of jhanas. You have to develop jhanas 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 before you can access formless jhanas. Are you really missing anything that you don't? My sense. My sense of it is. The ability to access these. Well, for those who practiced insight meditation, you know it's tough. It's a really difficult path to free the mind from its attachment, aversion, and delusion and in the course of which one comes across great discomfort of mind and body. Great anxiety, great pain, great fear, great terror, and, and all sorts. And it is difficult. It's nice to be able to access jhanas because, you know, you're, just, you're, you're in the midst of your insight and you're just really getting overwhelmed with the dukkha of mental and physical dukkha. You know the word dukkha? Okay, you get overwhelmed with this physical and mental dukkha and you say, I need a break. Access jhana. So you drop into this great comfort, this great joy, this great peace and tranquility, and you rest there for a while. For a minute or two, an hour, a day, whatever you like. Recharge your batteries. Then you go back to your practice inside again. It's a great resting space. It's wholesome, it keeps the mind tranquil and focused, and uh, it's a. When you practice uh, insight meditation, your mind stays close to dukkha. Dukkha is, you know what it is, huh? Dukkha. Dukkha is the, uh, the unsatisfactory nature of experience. Now, if we look very close at experience, and I mean really close, you begin to see that there is no experience that you can have or that you have had that has provided you with a sense of completion and satisfaction. Where is that feeling of great satisfaction you had uh, after your last best meal, or the last movie, or the last lover, or the last book you read, last whatever. Where is that sense of fulfillment and completion? Not there. It's gone. gone. Pointing to the experience of dukkha. That nothing is going to do it for you. Nothing is going to give you that sense of, this is it. I'm content. Finished. I don't have to, I'm not looking for anything else. I'm satisfied with life. So, if you're not satisfied, you're dissatisfied. 
there is a sense of dissatisfaction. That's dukkha. When you practice insight meditation, you stay close to dukkha and free yourself from the belief in anything but dukkha. However, when you practice jhanas, your mind stays close to sukha. And if dukkha is unpleasant and painful, sukha is pleasant and joyful. And so, it's a great place to hang out in intermission. You know, in between shows. Good place. Yeah. You spoke of, um, I think, faculties of the mind. Yeah. Um, equanimity, compassion, five of them, I think. Yeah. And there's 52. Ah, will you summarize them into five? I five, uh, there were five jhanas. But up above, you were talking about five mind states. It had adjectives uh, connected with them. Well, in any case, I'm always surprised when these mind states, equanimity, compassion, um, whatever, are spoken of as if they existed or arose somewhere and arrived full-blown in the mind, when really they had been generated bit by bit by the mind. And they only exist in milliseconds. So how can they be described as existent entities in that way? Right. Question is, uh, how can mental factors, the mental states, like equanimity, tranquility, mindfulness, or aversion, delusion, confusion, these are also mental states, how they can be described uh, in a way that seems to make them a kind of an entity that comes full-blown into our experience and just hangs up there? Well, it's because the mind uh, is a conditioned phenomenon. And uh, if we are trained and condition our mind to arouse a lot of aversion and anger and disappointment and frustration, it's just like we live with it. It's just full-blown in there, and we walk around depressed all day, walk around angry all day, or walk around whatever. And if you practice and condition and train your mind otherwise to be tranquil, equanimous, mindful, light, compassionate, uh, then there is a certain momentum built up in the mind. And the potential of this moment gets passed on to the next moment, gets passed on to the next moment, the next moment, the next moment. And if you keep working on it, the momentum becomes very strong. And there is a sense of it being a very strong, all-pervasive, semi-permanent uh, condition of the mind. And as soon as you stop practice, it starts wavering. Uh, decreasing and the momentum lessens and inhabits it take over again. So there's a sense of it or an experience of it being a kind of a, a state of mind that just kind of comes with uh, with some experience of it. And uh, for as long as the uh, momentum is there, it ex- it's experienced. But it is generated by that mind rather than existing in any form outside of the mind. Let me ask you this. Uh, let me let me let me describe that. She's saying, but it 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 it's generated by the mind. It doesn't exist out there and come into the mind or anything like that. The way I the way I like to describe mental states or mental factors in terms of consciousness huh, is, and this is really what we're talking about on Thursday. Is if you take an apple, okay, you got an apple here. This apple has a shape, a color, a texture, a smell, a name. It has many things. 
Okay? If you take away one of those things, if you take away the color of an apple, you can't describe its shape. Take away the color of an apple, what's it look like? I don't know. You take away the smell of an apple, what do you got? Nothing. So it's like mental states are the same way. Mental states and consciousness, they all come together as a package. They arise with that mind. They're not out there separate. Mm -hmm. the, the consciousness is a container, the receptacle for those mental states. And they can be cultivated into that momentary mind or not. And then a word is given to uh, them. That's, that's another process, long yeah. way down the line. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Now, it's almost 9.30. Should we do a brief sitting meditation? Huh? I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.